Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the Paramount Podcast Network. I am Mike Casazza, welcoming in Chris Anderson for, well, it's a due edition of the Q&A. And Chris, in the spirit of jumping right into it, saving the time for subscriber questions and our answers, I will take the honors today and lead off with the first question. Go for it. This comes from I am... MTN. This person says, um, curling my hair as if I had any. Do you all answer these questions? Once once a month or so, I guess, right? Is that yes. about? That's the A in the Q&A, sir. Um, <laughs> however, this is the last post on the board. It's shortly before you and I had this conversation on a Tuesday morning. I'm assuming he's new. Although he's been here for 58 months, it says, with 162 comments. But yes, subscribers like you, I am MTN. Ask questions. Chris and I answer to the best of our ability and knowledge. Sometimes one better than the other. There we go. Well, we're already one for one right there. Got one out of the way. It doesn't go in the mailbag, which follows this. We get through many of the questions. The best of the best are plucked from the pile. Chris asks. Chris and I answer. And then when we are finished, Chris comes through. But the big broom sweeps up the rest into a written version for people who don't like to listen to things. And since they're not listening, I don't have a lot of time for them. That's why you take care of it. Without any further delay, let's get into the edition. Well, let's start with basketball because we obviously there's been some news there with basketball, with the addition of Trey Mitchell, which we covered in our emergency podcast, which, by the way, I didn't go back and double check to make sure that we were relevant there since we pre-recorded that one. But hopefully we didn't have too many uh, issues with uh, things we said that might not have been relevant anymore. Um, but I think we need to discuss it. And there were a lot of questions in there to indicate that, that we do. Because the first one comes from Yidio10. says, is the basketball team as currently constructed a tournament team? And if so, what seed do you envision for them? I'm not going to press you on the seed, Mike. But is this a tournament team yet? I believe so. I don't see the flaws that I saw last year, which kind of pulled them down toward that what sub-500 record. I was probably higher on their offensive potential last year. I had questions about their front court and the the potential relative to experience of a lot of the players that they were bringing in, and that would be Malik Curry, Polly Polly, Captain Moan Kerrigan. And nothing against them, but it just seemed to me like they would be thrust into big spots that had to be really good. And they hadn't had to do that yet. And then 
pretty early in the process, Bob Huggins was kind of sour about that, saying these guys just come from lower levels and don't understand what it's going to be like in the in the Big 12. And what always struck me about that was they were like 11-1 and one and, and played pretty good basketball, you know, kind of blew one half against Marquette, but looked pretty good at times. And you're thinking, all right, this is going in the right direction. But that, that forecast from Huggins always stuck with me, and, and darn if it wasn't true. And then there were probably some locker room things, so some COVID uh, slash injury things that interfered as well that you don't foresee, but you have to take into account as a possibility. And if I do that now, I don't. I see a lot of experience, and I see people who want to be here and want to do this, which makes me less concerned about chemistry experiments. Can't do anything about injuries. I don't really believe that COVID will be a big issue. It really wasn't last year, apart from the one notable case. So you figure you clear out a lot of the junk from the crawl space, and you can get through it without being as dirty. Um, I, I just like their plan so far. I still don't think they're done, at least trying. We'll see about adding, but... Uh, they've had a plan, and they haven't stopped until they got it, and Mitchell was the big piece that they think that they were trying to build around. You had you had corner pieces, and you had middle pieces that, that needed to attach to the, from you know the edge to the middle. Now you have a centerpiece, I think, in Mitchell and some parts around him that make more sense. I don't know how they don't end up in the tournament based on what I see so far. Seed, who knows? Let me follow this up with you. I agree with you. I do think it's a tournament team, but I think this is where I want to expand on this. At what point did your mind flip on if this was a tournament team or not? Like, was it, uh, cause I'm assuming that it wasn't, you know, as soon as the season ended that next, you know, this coming year was going to be a tournament team, but did you start thinking this is a tournament team when they added Stevenson and Tucson, or was it not until after they added Matthews or was it not until after they added Mitchell? So at what point did your mind kind of, kind of flip to, Hey, this might be a tournament team again. It's kind of weird, but, I always think that a Huggins team and a West Virginia team is a tournament team. Like they're going to get a caliber of player and coaching that, that should get them there. And that happens far more likely than it doesn't. So when players start to bail and players graduate, okay, it's not necessarily like, man, they're going to stink. It's like, how is this picture going to look for a tournament team? And then, like, we, we've been consistent about talking about this. They were going to get experienced players from Power 5 conferences, and they had to have you know, one to two guards, they had to have one to two bigs and they wanted a wing and they went out and they got the guards and, and, you know, say what you want about Stevenson and Toussaint, but I think that fits what they want to do. You have guys who are eager and who want to make it work and, and who do want to be here. Toussaint's a really good example of a guy who's played competitively for good teams and wants a little more spotlight. That's okay. Stevenson fits in. Um, I think he can do a, an impersonation of different needs for what the offense and the, the defense have. Matthews knows his way around here. I think he's a good glue piece. Uh, Wade and Bell seem like they're, I don't know. We'll see. But frankly, they don't have to be as great right now when you add Mitchell. Mitchell would be the one that made me put my feet in the wet cement, I guess, because I just think he's that type of a talent they can get right. They wouldn't do this at this point unless they've done their homework and they're sure they can get a waiver and that they're sure he can be a contributor. I'm sure they've been conversations with him and his people to make sure this is going to work. That would be the one that put me over the top. But I was always going in that direction. And Really, nothing they did made me say, uh-oh, step back, uh-oh, move to the side, let's see where this goes, because I thought they were going somewhere with this. They were going to keep doing things until the picture looked right, and they'd done that up until, what was that, Friday with Mitchell. Right, and uh, this was something, I'm, I'm in full agreement here, because this was something I talked about with the, I wrote a story, God, when was that? It was right after the season. It was a look back at Bob Huggins' history of, of quote-unquote, fixing it, mm-hmm. and looking at the times that his team has finished under 500. And what happened in the year or two after that season? Uh, the first two times that happened to him, 
wasn't his fault. It was his first year, I believe, at, at each of his stops in those instances. The second two times were his two times under 500 at West Virginia. This would be his third. And both times, there was tremendous turnover in the offseason, but not in a bad way, almost like in a pruning. Like I, I'm not meaning this negative towards anybody that has left the program, but like pruning some of the, 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 bad, the bad limbs, the dead limbs, and trying to let new growth come in and adding new pieces. And I think that's pretty much what he's done. Again, like uh, some, some pieces that left were good. It, but I, I think they brought in some new life and and some and some better pieces that might make this a more well-rounded team and one that's going to play his style and get them back into the tournament because this is what he does. When things don't go right, it's, all right, scrap it, let's start over. And, and tries to start over by doing the, not starting over, literally from the ground up, but with new players that are experienced and can handle it. So... I'm with you. I think this is a tournament team. I think this is something that we, you and I have been predicting he would be doing, a massive overhaul with experienced players. Um, and here we are. And maybe not done, which leads us to the next question. If not Cor- Courtney Ramey, the other Texas transfer, then who, if anyone? Is there someone else we're targeting, or is it Ramey or sticking with what we've got from Captain Earfan 3? I have two for this. I don't know if you want to go first because you might have two better ones or the two right answers. I'm not uh, sure. You know, mine are never better than yours, Mike. Go ahead. I've been, I've been obsessed with David Roddy for a while. And I know he's 6'6", two, like 255, 260. And that may not scream guard. He's a guard. And he's just unlike anybody else. And if you look at their roster right now, like that's a part that, again, few teams have, but you can make room for a guy like him. Uh, that's like they're not going to, they could be small in the backcourt. And you're talking Keydreen Johnson, Joe Toussaint, Eric Stevenson, although he's not like, I wouldn't call him short or squat, but he, he's not like, he's not 6'6, 255, right? And Roddy's the guy who shot a very high percentage in three last year. He's averaged about three assists across his career. He handles the ball. They list him as a forward. He's a guard. Or at least he's guard capable. He could play two. He could be a third guard. And he would be a matchup nightmare. Um, trouble is, he's probably a first-round draft pick. And <laughs> it's not a given that he's going to be um, available. He's had his options of, I might go pro. I might go to the portal. I might come back. It's awful late in the game. Um, but I, I've just always seen him. And, and if you haven't looked at him, look at him. David Roddy, Colorado State, just a unique player. There's no one like him. And I just think that he creates a lot of problems. Like, does West Virginia have problems? Yeah, maybe. I'll get to one in a second. But he causes problems. And you're going to have to match up with that. And good luck. He's a bull who can shoot and pass and handle. And I've just liked him for a long, long time. Um, and then just kind of a weird thing. Like, we're, we're one piece away, Chris, from from – completing the offseason for West Virginia. And you would say it's a player or or a position maybe. Not you specifically, though perhaps you would. But all I need, Chris, is... <clears throat> excuse me, let me crack my knuckles here. Crane my neck. Guys are making shots. <laughs> and, like, I feel Umoja Gibson's out there and can do some backcourt things, could be on the ball, could be off the ball, and he's just offense off the bench. He can come in and hit four threes and a half for you. He could hit 
a couple of threes and like a 10-0 run. And um, I think West Virginia's people know his coach from UNT. They obviously know him from Oklahoma. I don't know why he's leaving Oklahoma, except that maybe he wants to do more than what I just described. But you're looking for a shooter who's still out there who would know the Big 12 and who could step in that the Mountaineers know. That's awful intriguing to me. I don't know that there's an option for West Virginia in either one of those cases. I don't know that they're really looking hard at other people right now. And I could see them not adding uh, Ramey and then not adding anybody. But again, I've been on, I've been just eyeballing Roddy for a long time. And, and Gibson just seems like that would be seamless in some regard if they wanted to do it. They being both of them. Yeah, nothing. I, I, I love the Roddy pick. I know, I don't know West Virginia's interest, but I love the, <laughs> I, I, I like that type of player. I mean, a 250-pound guard. Like, I know uh, Likely's not that big, right? The kid from – the the young man from Oklahoma State. Um, but I, I like the idea of having that big, thick guard that can essentially overpower and big boy other guards that can get in there and get dirty in the paint, can grab rebounds, and can help out your forwards uh, on the glass. So I, I really like that pick of yours there. Um but no, I haven't heard anything specific about, you know, is it Ramey and nothing or Ramey and then somebody else behind that? Who knows? But um, I wouldn't be surprised either if it's no Ramey and no nothing. And, and they just say, hey, did a good job. Let's move forward. NC wayward ear. Again, related. Let's uh, let's pretend like there's there's no Ramey. I mean, because there's not right now. With the current basketball roster, who is your starting five and first three off the bench, and why? What you got? This is you, because you like to do the the finishing five first. <laughs> um, at least as like as like a priority, which I get. But let me see where you start, because I have I have my five and my three here is kind of fuzzy, because I'm not. I don't know. I, I don't think that they're going to have three necessarily, because I think that the, that bench could really fluctuate based on matchups, which is the point of having the the complexion that they have right now okay let me ask you this before i get my starting five i the all four transfers are in the starting five true or false i'm not sure about tucson okay that would be the one that i'm not sure about i and i'm with you i feel like that's a tucson kd kind of hey whichever way it goes you know one's a starter one's not they play similar minutes and then you figure out who's playing the best and that person closes or try a couple people try them both out with the close the quote-unquote closing five for the first couple weeks or maybe in the first month all of non-conference play and then and then stick with whatever works best the rest of the way so i'm with you on that because yeah i was thinking matthews mitchell stevenson starter 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 and then i was torn between tucson and Keedy. And then it gets interesting for me. This is where Mitchell comes into play as like a, a, a connect factor. Right. Like, am I going with another guard, a, a guard, a wingish kind of guy? Am I going with like shooting with Jamel King? Am I going with another guard, a bigger guard that can, uh, you know, do something in um, Kobe Johnson? Or am I going with a, another forward and going with a Conquo who, for those who don't remember, I mean, Bob Huggins was talking him up as the most athletic big they had on their team, that he was the guy that could get up there and rebound, the guy that could 
do all of these things that no other big on their roster could do last year until he got hurt. Now, how much of that was coach speak? How much of that was, uh, you know, the truth? I, I think I'm leaning more towards the truth because I don't think Bob Huggins is too big on coach speak. I mean, I know a little bit, all of them are, but do you go a Conquo and you got Stevenson, Keedy, Keedy, Stevenson, Matthews, Conquo, Mitchell, Mitchell, Conquo, however you want to put it. Yeah, so that's that's the thing here now too. Are they a two guard? With I, I just have a hard time thinking he's not going to start Keedy and Johnson for for him coming back, and then I would assume having a good off season and Tucson's kind of a cut into doing whatever it takes coming off the bench. Tucson can play more, and I don't think he'll care if he starts or not. But I would see Keedrian Johnson, and this is where things get interesting. Their two-three combination is it the point, and then Stevenson Matthews is it the point? Kobe Stevenson is it the point? Seth Wilson Stevenson, like Stevenson's six-four and is an older guy who knows how to probably play bigger than he is, and he can probably mix match a little bit. He could play like the two slash three. Um, that's interesting to me. And then, irrespective of that, four five. Um, is Matthews a four? Is he a three? So if you go two guards, Matthews can play three, and then you're big because now your four five could be Oconquo Mitchell, Mitchell Oconquo, whatever, or Mitchell Wig. Yep. Because Mitchell does have that that six nine two twenty to him. He's not two fifty. You know, he's he's two twenty, and unless he balloons and has muscles and mass that he hadn't had before, at least recently. Like that's a guy who can play four. And now if you're three, four, five, are Matthews, Mitchell Wade, Matthews, Mitchell Oconquo, that's pretty big. That's pretty cool. And you might be able to get away with a smaller backcourt. And then if you're four five, <laughs> if your four five is is dependent on the opponent too, you know, you could do Matthews, Mitchell. You could do something even more traditional if, if you're gonna keep Matthews as a four. But you know, Mitchell does give you some flexibility. So does Matthews. So three or four or four and a five. Um I just see like a need for defense and I and I just wonder about like a, a traditional backcourt and then a three, four, five of Matthews, Mitchell, Wake, Matthews, Mitchell, Oconquo, some type of that where they have some size and you know, Wake is kind of an eraser ish guy. I know that, that we mentioned this before, but like a little bit like Tariq Owens at Texas Tech and St. John's a couple years ago. But if you go Matthews, Mitchell, Oconquo, you're looking at six, seven, six, eight, six, nine guys who can probably handle their feet around the perimeter and in the post and switch and do some different things. That's kind of intriguing too. And that leads to the question about the defense and what they're going to do. Um, there's options. I see, I just see like a one, two with the point in Stevenson and then kind of a big three, four, five that can move around and do some things. I'm with you. I, again, I just don't, I, I think the point here is there isn't, there isn't one answer. I don't think. Yeah. It, I don't think it could so be either. different. I was going to say, and, and Huggins is not one to really swap the lineups around a lot once the season starts. But So I think whatever you see towards the start of the year will probably be it. But I'm not sure there'll be an answer until the start of the year because I'm with you. Do you go three guard? You got Matthews at the four. You got Matthews at the three, however you want to do it. I think there's some flexibility, and that's a good thing. And I think you're going to see it swap around a lot in the game, but maybe not like for the first you know five minutes of the game because – Again, over the years, we've seen him, like, for instance, start a guy, play him like five minutes, and then that's essentially it for the game. They're not 
you know, play 10 minutes or so for an entire game, but he's a starter. So he's not afraid to do that. So I think he'll find his five and, and flex it around as the game goes on to figure out what's best. Yeah. And then your bench is going to fluctuate too. I would think that if Tucson doesn't start, he's probably a bet to be a very uh, reliable six man, just in the fact that that's a guard who wants to come in and, and figure out, okay, they can't guard the perimeter. I'm going to drive or, you know, they can't work a pick and roll. I'm going to, I'm going to maneuver around my bigs and try to get something to happen. I think he can do that. That's a good bench guy to me, I would think. Whereas Keydream would be fine for defense, and maybe if he gets his head down and learns how to score and get to the foul line, that might be good too. I have no problem penciling them in as an early sub. But after that, you know, what does the game dictate? Do you need, like, an Oconquo to come in and grab rebounds and maybe to stretch a little bit? Do you need a Jamel Kane to come in and hit some threes? Do you need a Seth Wilson to come in and hit some threes? Does Kobe have to come in and settle things down and – try to get the offense going and do the things he did last year where he was a, a pretty productive part of a number of good player combinations and lineups because, you know, he, he kind of understood for a freshman how to fit in and can he do more as a sophomore who knows more and knows more about fitting in. Um, they're going to have, they're going to have some options in the bench if they're refined and, and know their roles and, and their purpose that you can maybe avoid some of the situations where you're caught the floor with bad lineups and you get like a 12-2 run put against you. All right. Moving on to the next question, this one from Dan Proud. Kind of help us transition from basketball to football because it's a two-parter. Let's do the basketball part first. Who is the next assistant coach to get a head coaching job? And he gives football and basketball. Basketball being Larry Harrison or Eric Martin. Eric Martin. Okay. I, I This is not – you know, when I, when I read this, I, I said – Wow, what a podcast bait question. What a bait question. And then I thought about it. And I said, the answer is obviously this. And then I thought, and then I thought, well, maybe not. Maybe it's this. And then I thought, well, that's a pretty darn good question, actually, because I think there is some debate about which way you would go. Larry Harrison being, I, I guess, the more senior of the assistant coaches on Bob Huggins' staff, uh, or at least out of these two here that we're talking about. Uh, he's been linked with a couple head coaching jobs, but so too recently has Eric Martin. So I think it depends on which job in particular opens up because either one of those um, could end up with a head coaching gig in the next couple of years. So I'm not sure which way I was leaning. I went back and forth on both of them like five times after seeing the question. I think Eric has some momentum recently from his traction with the Cincinnati job. He'll get support from people he played with who are still recognizable. And also like a lot of that stuff where he's been on, you know, the top 40 under whatever list. I'm not sure he's under 40 anymore. Maybe I should know that, but Larry's been around for a while, but he's also been on the bench here for, I mean, literally since day one. And I can only remember one, maybe two jobs that he was deep in and they were not high profile jobs, but he, he makes good money here and, and has a good rapport with Huggins, and he might be here. We'll see. Um, football side of things. Same question. <clears throat> Graham Harrell or Jordan Leslie? I just I just think Leslie because I think he was close to the Troy job, and there might be an argument about, well, you know, a lot of these schools are picking defensive, excuse me, offensive coaches. Well, Troy almost picked a defensive coach and ultimately picked a defensive coach and John Sumrall. Um, Sumrall just has a little bit higher profile than Leslie right now. But if you look at Leslie's arrow pointing up in that direction too, certainly too, it would be the right situation for him, for him to move. I think before Harold, who is a more renowned, albeit like 
younger in in the game, I think, because he's only been around for a couple of years. You know, three at SC, three at North Texas, two at Washington State. But you look at his playing experience, high-profile NFL experience. Listen, he was not a high-profile player in the NFL. He was in some situations that certainly account for something. Um, but then again, Leslie, his career is mostly in junior college until hitting Troy and West Virginia. So it's not like he's, you know, gray in the hair, long in the tooth, too. So they're both kind of young guys who have some time. They're going to have to get, like, I think, entry-level spots. But I just think that a guy who can recruit junior colleges knows the defense, you don't have to worry about that, and can get himself around some good offensive coaches. I always think that there's like a lean about that from administrators and ADs about it's easier to find offensive coaches who can complement a defensive-minded head coach. And you have like this concern about putting an offensive guy in charge and complementing your your roster and your game plan with defensive staff addition. That's not to say Harold can't do it, but I think a knock on a lot of air raid and then Mike Leach, whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put it, I think a knock on that sometimes that they're so hyper focused on offense they overlook defense, and sometimes that can be a drawback too. Whereas conversely, Leslie already knows the defense, and if he's going to let somebody run the offense, he's going to delegate and he's going to hire an offensive coordinator who's going to do that stuff. Now you're going to have two roundabout sides that are that are going to be you know, led by someone devoted to just that cause. Um, that said. Harold will be in the lead, I would think, but I also wonder about what head coaching job he wants to take. Um, Leslie's time is probably coming. I think he wants to do it sooner than later, I would I would imagine. But Harold may be a little bit pickier, too, because he's moved around a bunch, and you know sometimes these guys that, that do that, they're just seeing these offensive savants, but what have they done? Um, until they get in that head chair, it's hard to know but they want to make sure that they take the right seat at the right table so that this doesn't derail. And all the I told you so's out there, they don't get a chance to come up and say, I told you so. So he might delay it a little bit on his own, whereas Leslie might be ready or might be given a chance sooner. Yeah, I think Leslie's recent success at West Virginia, his ability to make that quick transition to full-time defensive coordinator, you know, with everything that happened that summer, and all of a sudden he's thrust into the – to the lead gig there. And then over the past few seasons has, you know, a a lot of turnover, a lot of turnover on that defense and just kind of rolled with it and still put out a solid product each and every season. He has put out a defense that can help you win games each and every season, despite all the turnover, despite all the young guys, despite all the coaching changes on his staff, and has done that job. And I think that is what's going to make him more enticing, his ability to adapt and adjust like that. And and he's already done it, um, will entice more people. Because, yeah, I went through the same thought process, as you mentioned a minute ago, of, yeah, yeah, it's got to be Leslie. And then it's like, well, I mean, offense offense wins football games right now. I mean, they, they, they have the data to back it up that even teams like Alabama are putting more focus on on offense than they are defense. So maybe because of that trend, Harrell ends up getting the job first, but I'm, I'm still leaning towards Leslie just because of his ability to adapt. And like you said, you have him just adapting and doing everything on defense. And then you can, he can go find that offensive savant to help carry that side of the ball. I like it. Um, next question. What one thing other than the move to the big 12 do you think has had the biggest impact to WVU sports in the last decade? That's from the big dude. There, There's low-hanging fruit here like NIL and transfer 
immediate eligibility and things like that. Um, I thought about this one, and like the first answer that came to my head uh, has been a topic lately, and I was like, well, that can't be it. So I backed off a little bit. So um, I'll, I'll give you my runner up. The the bond for construction for facilities is a really big deal. That let them plant some seeds and and put up new stuff and improve stuff all over the athletic campus. And that's a big deal because their facilities were trailing. We've been over this before. Like they had the worst football facilities. That's mm-hmm. that's a bad thing if you're in a power five conference. I'm not sure they still have the worst, but like if they're tenth or ninth, they're way closer to one than they ever were before. They don't have the nicest. They don't have top half nicest. I know that. But like the gap was such that it was not good. And when and when you won't take recruits to certain parts of your athletic campus because of the comparison they're going to make to places they've been or will be to, that's not good. You don't hear that anymore. So the bond and the way for them to fund stuff, that was a huge deal. So that would be a big one for me. Um, my pick with that would be baseball and just the the commitment to baseball. That means salaries. That means agreeing to fully fund scholarships. That means paying assistant coaches and all that stuff. And, and the head coach should keep them here too. Um, the stadium, and granted, that's that's financed by tax increments, but it's still financed. They had to have a plan. It bridges the offseason from you know basketball to football. And if you have year-round fans for a college campus, that's a big deal because college campuses are more about your relationship with the school and the athletic department necessarily than players. It's more about your relationship being a fan. You know, Going to games, concessions, the experience, because those players are going to cycle through, I was going to say every four or five years, but that's not even true now. But your your time going to the game is the same. It's a routine. You tailgate, you know, you get up at a certain hour, you tailgate, you watch the game, you tailgate again, you go to the hotel, you go home. And you do that again and again and again. And then, like, when you hit that dry patch after the basketball season, well, if things aren't going well, or if you're busy or whatever, you might not come back in football, or you might not do basketball. If you have that bridge from one season season to the other, and it's like a quality bridge, like the baseball team has been good and it's fun. I think that keeps your fans engaged year round. That's good for fundraising. That's good for renewing season tickets. That's good for our next generation of fans because baseball fans are younger. Like they go to the games because there's cotton candy and, and peanuts and Cracker Jacks and things like that. Well, they grow up. And a challenge for, for college sports right now is having next generation fans because certain people time out. They get older or they have kids or they move away because they're not on their college campus anymore. But you got to replenish that. And the more active you are and the more successful you are in keeping fans engaged year round, the more likely you are to replenish your fan base. So that's a cool thing, I think. And, and it's probably starting to pay off now because attendance of baseball has been pretty solid for a couple of years. Has it made season tickets and football better? No, that's not happening anywhere. So maybe the drop off hasn't been as severe. But now you're also seeing like people who are more engaged in baseball and then as such in wvu well does that help when the volleyball team is good or when women's basketball is a new coach and they want to get attendance up does it help with wrestling matches does it help with soccer matches yeah it does because now you're part of the fan base you're not a fan of football you're not a fan of basketball you're a fan of west virginia this probably isn't at the finish line yet but i think that was a goal um and and to see this so far down the line right now i think what 10 years it's it's a pretty it's a pretty big difference I think when you step back and look at what it was and what it is, just for all the fan bases. And the one thing that's really changed is baseball because they they invested in it, they made it uh, a pastime. Forgive me, but by doing so, they accomplished other goals, which was to get fans more involved more frequently. And then you know once you get inside, you look around, you're like, well, hey, this is fun. Let me go to a wrestling match. Let me go to a volleyball match. Let me go to a soccer match. So. Um, 
maybe imperceptible, but to me as a reporter on these things, that's a notice noticeable difference for me. I like the big picture look to the whole the health of the ecosystem, if you will. Yes. I think I think that's the right answer. Um, I'll I'll take the other angle and go more big money sport specific and its impact as it rolls around. And I think I'm going back to it's going to be oddly specific, but the fourth quarter of the 2018 game against Oklahoma State. Because mm-hmm. we're talking the last 10 years. So this goes back to 2020, 2012. Now, 2012 could have been a tremendous year, but, I mean, there's no one specific game. I mean, the Texas Tech game, I guess you could say, but really the whole thing went off the rails for the second half of the season. But you look at that Oklahoma State game in 2018. West Virginia is ranked inside the top 10 at the time. They are one of the teams that everyone's talking about. I mean, they were literally in, like, the, uh, you know, college football playoff ranking things that they were releasing, the, the rankings that they were releasing. And if West Virginia wins that game, they are automatically in the Big 12 championship game no matter what happens in their final game of the season against Oklahoma. No matter what, they are in the cha- Big 12 championship game for the first and, as of right now, only time ever. Instead. Well, I think it was a 93, 94% chance, uh, like looking at those, you know, ESPN in-game win probabilities. They were up two scores in the fourth quarter, and things just fell apart. Um, They couldn't stop anybody. They couldn't get first downs all of a sudden. And that was when it kind of just, like, went sideways. And once that happened... They lose that game. Then they have to win Oklahoma, but they don't. They lose that one in the last second. They're out the Big 12 championship game. Instead of Will Greer throwing passes to David Sills and Gary Jennings in the Big 12 championship game and a big extension for Dana Holgerson, it's Jack Allison throwing passes to Quincy Hall in the Camping World Bowl against Syracuse. And that's the end of the Dana Holgerson era. Yeah, that happens. I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say that, that that you win that game and all of a sudden Dana's still around and then all yeah, none of whatever happens the last three years happens and this team gets back on track in a different way. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. But then it ends up with everything happening with Holgerson leaving and then him ending up at Houston and all of a sudden Houston's back and then Houston's in the Big 12 now. I think there's a lot of dominoes from that one loss right there at the end of 2018 that a, lot, a game that a lot of people just kind of forget about when that was extremely impactful. That would be the the micro, right? Yes. I like it. That's a good one, too. I mean, that's that's a specific one that sticks out to me as well. It's like a, a, a moment, a game, uh, an interchange in the path, and that's that's an impossible one to ignore. One of those sliding door situations, you know, one slide open one way, some a whole new timeline, if you will. Yeah, um, speaking of new timelines and sliding doors, this was you and I both picked this one out to uh, answer on the pod. And maybe, well, do you want to end on this one? I was going to end on this one, unless you had something else you want to talk about. This is the uh, national championship question. Go for it. Okay. What would have, this is from GA Mountaineer 15. What would have been more important for the WVU football team's trajectory and why winning the 88 or 2007 national championship? 
Oh, seven. Next oh, question. Good. good. Oh, oh. So it's no question to you. I just think where we have come in 15 years since then, and you look at what happened from college football from what 88 to 2007, it's the, the last 15 years run laps around the 19 before it, just in the way that the game has evolved and the way that the money has progressed, how different, never mind the product on the field is when it comes to speed, size, scheme, and, and the diversity of each and how capably that diversity can be organized and applied on offense, on defense, on special teams so that unique and different can be good and can be effective. And if it doesn't look like what it looks like on the other, by the way, two or three channels, right, uh, back in the 80s, it's going to look like and be more successful or less successful than what's on the other seven, eight, nine, twelve channels, right? So it's just it's just so much bigger and, and more vast and more diverse, but also more entertaining and and more lucrative now than it was fifteen years ago. And the and the growth I think far exceeds what happened in those same parameters between eighty eight and two thousand seven. So that's number one. Like you're going somewhere when you win a national title in 88. You're going somewhere when you win a national title in seven in 2007. If you win it in 07, you're much more prepared for now. And this just seems like it's evolved in such a way that it's going to continue like this a little bit, but you'd be much better off winning it now than you would have 19 years ago because you probably navigated the changes and maybe even led the changes. And particular to that, who was doing different, better than West Virginia in 2007? Nobody, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and you had a guy who would not have left had he won the national title. I don't think it might've been a couple years later, but he gets a big contract and all those things we talked about, like having to invest in baseball to make other sports better, having to have bonds to build stuff and refurbish stuff. That stuff comes sooner and quicker when you have a national championship football program. And that wasn't the case in, two, in 1998 excuse me, 1988, because the business was different. You needed those things, but you, you didn't do it with the same motivation or the same ease, the same logic or the same, you know, it is what it is. That's how you have to do it as you would have in 2007, never mind today too. So um, just the fact that you probably keep your coach who was a bit of a visionary and doing different better than everybody else. And then if you take the program that does more with less and you give them more, there, there's a lot of potential there that probably takes you into the next generation and takes you further than a similar or, or a parallel or identical conquest would have taken you in 1988. All right. I think I'm with you. I, I had a little bit more uncertainty about it, a little bit more inner debate, inner dialogue about it, because I tried to think back in, in 1988. I was, I was only four, um, so I don't remember the, the landscape of college football at the time. But what, like, I was trying to think of what that had to deal with as far as timing on conference changes, conference realignment, TV deals, because some of these teams, as we've seen over the years, and, and it's more than just a one off, I think, because I mean, Washington won or claimed a half a title, and nobody cares about them. Colorado claimed half a title, Georgia Tech claimed half a title. Nobody cares about them. No offense to those programs, but like, that was around that time, you know, right around 1990, I believe it was Colorado, right? And that that doesn't hold up. People don't think, hey, national champion Colorado. 
in, in 2022. That's not how people think right now. So that wouldn't stick like I would like some of the, cause we give teams a hard time, like, like Pitt, for instance, how they have this vast history of college football, but so much of it happened so, 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 so long ago that no one should care, but it still helps hold them up in the world of college football. No one would ever think of not including Pitt, for instance, in, you know, if the top teams separated. Like, yeah, Pitt's in, of course. And so I think if you have that national championship in your back pocket early on, um, you can hold on to it. But I guess that would be even more true if it happened in 2007. And I don't know if there were that many um, changes coming to realignment because I think West Virginia was independent in 88, right? Like they didn't join the big, big East until mm-hmm. a couple years after that. And that might've already been set in motion even before that national championship game. So I don't think that would have had an impact, but that's where I was going. That's the only reason I had a, a, a debate. I didn't want to make a quick answer because my quick answer was 2007, just like you, like no doubt, not even a question. Um, but I wanted to think more about the conference realignment, the TV deals, establishing a, a a blue blood a light blue blood a teal blood legacy like way back you know like some of these programs have but i just don't think it sticks if it's a one-off type of thing you have to do it a couple times and if it's just 88 that's just once and people forget about it eventually so yeah i think 2007 with how drastically things have changed in the last 15 years as you noted it it, it would be far more impactful uh keep rich rodriguez around longer you get another year of Pat White, Noel Devine all together in 2008, you know, the following year. I don't know if you're running it back, but you're going to have a lot of publicity around that. And all of a sudden, if you're running it back with a national championship team coming in likely with a top 10 ranking, your coach back on a big new contract extension, Pat White, Noel Devine putting up ridiculous numbers, then all of a sudden that snowballs into – getting some big time recruits because you're like, holy cow, look at all these, look at these guys doing it again. And they're crazy. And this offense is awesome. And yeah, you know, maybe it snowballs into something else that's even better. And maybe West Virginia is getting that look into the ACC instead of the big 12 and so on and so forth. So I'm with you. 2007 is the answer. 88, they go 11 and one. 89, eight and three. Eight, three and one. Pretty good. Four and seven, six and five, five and four. If you win a title, do you get a recruiting bump back then that carries you much stronger through four and six, six and five, five, four and two? I don't know if you do as much then as you do now. Correct. And then my point there being 07, 11 and two, nine and four, nine and four, nine and four, 10 and three. Pretty good. You might legitimately win another. If you win a title in 07, it might prompt you to, and, and Rich Rod sticks around, because I think we all agree that the issues with those, especially the 2010 team, was the offense had stalled out under Jeff Mullen. Mm-hmm. If you keep that defense, which the two, I think it was the 2010 one was like one of the best ever for West Virginia, as far as statistically, um, and you put it with a Rich Rod offense, I mean, you're not going to have Pat White that year because he would have already graduated. But still, you might end up in, I guess it's not BCS, whatever the, the top bowls were at the time, again and again and again. Like, And then all of a sudden you have, what, like 
four, five, six BCS bowls in like an eight-year period. Yeah, you don't have like UConn representing UConn. Right. Because, <laughs> exactly. You're, yeah. you're you're not losing to Syracuse ten to seven in in the Carrier Dome or, or yeah. whatever it was. Um, you're not you're not putting a new coaching staff in in 2008 that says we're going to win games, you know, twenty to thirteen. Um, we're going to be balanced. We're going to strive for, you know, run pass splits and run pass yardage and all that stuff. No, you're going to have a guy who's going to keep his foot on the board and try to play like a Sarah's on fire and it would have kept going and you're right so like those thin years after the 88 appearance and they do get back by the way the, the number I didn't mention was that they got back to at least the stage around the stage for the national championship conversation in 93 right yeah um has not happened here since then but pull the rug out after that 07 season and if the rug is still there you got your foot and you probably go somewhere and you're right they're they're probably in that conversation because like the big east was still around for a couple years and they were still getting the bcs bid so you're going to be in those high level games and then who knows how many big east games you're losing if you're winning a national championship and recruiting that like how many big east games are you winning you're definitely you're definitely the number one recruiting class in the big east year after year after year right yep Um, i just because a lot of players are like wait a minute i can get to a bcs game and be in a national championship conversation every year by signing at west virginia instead of I don't know, LSU, Florida State, whatever, who might have been the competition for services back then in a more powerful conference. I think that would have been influential. And and hearing you talk, that's a dynamic that I think did not exist in 88. That's not like a logic um, exercise that players went through where now they do, because that's what recruiting is. Recruiting is recruiting is so much more different now than it was back then, too. And it's such a key that I just think you're better, sir, by winning one in 07. Well, I'm glad we've come back around and agreed on something again. Good, good time to finish. Yeah, it is. Agree. And for the rest of the questions, again, I will um, tackle those in written form. I will post those. Let's see, it's Tuesday morning. I'll probably post them Wednesday morning, the rest of the questions, and those will be there for everybody to read, including questions on Batman movies. Um, I believe somebody asked me to list every single leader in each statistical category and name every Big 12 award winner. So uh, I'm going to have my work cut out for me on the written form. Be a long one, but a good one. Yep. Much like this podcast. <laughs> As always. Until next time, I'm Mike Casaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you later. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.